Chapter 21. The Marines March On. When old Dr. Breed, with the help of Miss Faust, had passed out the Christmas chocolate bars to the girls, we returned to his office. There he said to me, Where were we? Oh, yes. And that old man asked me to think of United States Marines in a godforsaken swamp. Their trucks and tanks and howitzers are wallowing, he complained, sinking in stinking miasma and ooze. He raised a finger and winked at me. But suppose, young man, that one Marine had with him a tiny capsule containing a seed of ice nine, a new way for the atoms of water to stack and lock, to freeze. If that Marine threw that seed into the nearest puddle, the puddle would freeze, I guessed, and all the muck around the puddle, it would freeze, and all the puddles in the frozen muck, they would freeze, and the pools and the streams in the frozen muck, they would freeze? You bet they would, he cried, and the United States Marines would rise from the swamp and march on. Chapter 22. Member of the Yellow Press. There is such stuff? I asked. No, 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 said Dr. Breed, losing patience with me again. I only told you all this in order to give you some insight into the extraordinary novelty of the ways in which Felix was likely to approach an old problem. What I've just told you is what he told the Marine General who was hounding him about mud. Felix ate alone in the cafeteria every day. It was a rule that no one was to sit with him, to interrupt his chain of thought. But the Marine General barged in, pulled up a chair, and started talking about mud. What I've told you was Felix's offhand reply. There, there really isn't such a thing. I just told you there wasn't, cried Dr. Breed hotly. Felix died shortly after that. And if you'd been listening to what I've been trying to tell you about pure research men, you wouldn't ask such a question. Pure research men work on what fascinates them, not on what fascinates other people. I keep thinking about that swamp. You can stop thinking about it. I've made the only point I wanted to make with the swamp. If the streams flowing through the swamp froze as ice nine, what about the rivers and lakes the streams fed? They'd freeze, but there is no such thing as ice nine. And the oceans the frozen rivers fed? They'd freeze, of course, he snapped. I suppose you're going to rush to market with a sensational story about Ice Nine now. I tell you again, it does not exist. And the springs feeding the frozen lakes and streams? And all the water underground feeding the springs? They'd freeze, damn it, he cried. But if I had known that you were a member of the Yellow Press, he said, grandly rising to his feet, I wouldn't have wasted a minute with you. And the rain? When it fell, it would freeze into hard little hobnails of Ice Nine. And that would be the end of the world. And the end of the interview, too. Goodbye. Chapter 23. The Last Batch of Brownies Dr. Breed was mistaken about at least one thing. There was such a thing as Ice Nine. And Ice Nine was on Earth. Ice Nine was the last gift Felix Honecker created for mankind before going to his just reward. He did it without anyone's realizing what he was doing. He did it without leaving records of what he'd done. True, elaborate apparatus was necessary in the act of creation, but it already existed in the research laboratory. Dr. Honecker had only to go calling on laboratory neighbors, borrowing this and that, making a winsome neighborhood nuisance of himself, until, so to speak, he had baked his last batch of brownies. He had made a chip of Ice-9. It was blue-white, it had a melting point of 114.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Felix Honecker had put the chip in a little bottle, and he put the bottle in his pocket. 
and he had gone to his cottage on Cape Cod with his three children, there intending to celebrate Christmas. Angela had been thirty-four, Frank had been twenty-four, little Newt had been eighteen. The old man had died on Christmas Eve, having told only his children about Ice Nine. His children had divided the Ice Nine among themselves. Chapter 24 What a Wampeter is Which brings me to the Boconanist concept of a Wampeter. A Wampeter is the pivot of a carass. No carass is without a Wampeter, Boconan tells us, just as no wheel is without a hub. Anything can be a Wampeter. A tree, a rock, an animal, an idea, a book, a melody, the Holy Grail. Whatever it is, the members of its carass revolve about it in the majestic chaos of a spiral nebula. The orbits of the members of a carass about their common wampeter are spiritual orbits, naturally. It is souls and not bodies that revolve. As Boconan invites us to sing, Around and around and around we spin, with feet of lead and wings of tin. And wampeters come and wampeters go, Boconan tells us. At any given time, a carass actually has two wampeters, one waxing in importance, one waning. And I am almost certain that while I was talking to Dr. Breed in Ilium, the wampeter of my carass that was just coming into bloom was that crystalline form of water, that blue-white gem, that seed of doom called Ice Nine. While I was talking to Dr. Breed in Ilium, Angela Franklin and Newton Honecker had in their possession seeds of Ice Nine, seeds grown from their father's seed, chips, in a manner of speaking, off the old block. What was to become of those three chips was, I am convinced, a principal concern of my carass. Chapter 25 The Main Thing About Dr. Honecker So much for now for the wampeter of my carass. After my unpleasant interview with Dr. Breed in the research laboratory of the General Forge and Foundry Company, I was put into the hands of Miss Faust. Her orders were to show me to the door. I prevailed upon her, however, to show me the laboratory of the late Dr. Honecker first. En route, I asked her how well she had known Dr. Honecker. She gave me a frank and interesting reply, and a piquant smile to go with it. I don't think he was knowable. I mean, when most people talk about knowing somebody a lot or a little, they are talking about secrets they've been told or haven't been told. They are talking about intimate things, family things, love things, that nice old lady said to me. Dr. Honecker had all those things in his life, the way every living person has to, but they weren't the main things with him. Well, what were the main things? I asked her. Dr. Breed keeps telling me the main thing with Dr. Honecker was truth. You don't seem to agree. I don't know whether I agree or not. I just have trouble understanding how truth, all by itself, could be enough for a person. Miss Faust was ripe for Boconanism. Chapter 26 What God Is Did you ever talk to Dr. Honecker? I asked Miss Faust. Oh, certainly. I talked to him a lot. Do any conversations stick in your mind? There was one where he bet I couldn't tell him anything that was absolutely true. So I said to him, God is love. And what did he say? He said, What is God? What is love? Hmm. But God really is love, you know, said Miss Faust. No matter what Dr. Honecker said. Chapter 27 Men from Mars the room that had been the laboratory of Dr. Felix Honecker was on the sixth floor, the top of the building. A purple cord had been stretched across the doorway, 
and a brass plate on the wall explained why the room was sacred. In this room, Dr. Felix Honecker, Nobel laureate in physics, spent the last 28 years of his life. Where he was, there was the frontier of knowledge. The importance of this one man in the history of mankind is incalculable. Miss Faust offered to unshackle the purple cord for me so that I might go inside and traffic more intimately with whatever ghosts were there. I accepted. It's just as he left it, she said, except that there were rubber bands all over one counter. Rubber bands? Don't ask me what for. Don't ask me what any of all this is for. The old man had left the laboratory in a mess. What engaged my attention at once was the quantity of cheap toys lying around. There was a paper kite with a broken spine. There was a toy gyroscope, wound with string, ready to whir and balance itself. There was a top. There was a bubble pipe. There was a fishbowl with a castle and two turtles in it. He loved ten-cent stores, said Miss Faust. I can see he did. Some of his most famous experiments were performed with equipment that cost less than a dollar. A penny saved is a penny earned. There were numerous pieces of conventional laboratory equipment, too, of course, but they seemed drab accessories to the cheap gay toys. Dr. Honecker's desk was piled with correspondence. I don't think he ever answered a letter, mused Miss Faust. People had to get him on the telephone or come to see him if they wanted an answer. There was a framed photograph on his desk. Its back was toward me, and I ventured a guess as to whose picture it was. His wife? No. One of his children? No. Himself? No. So I took a look. I found that the picture was of an humble little war memorial in front of a small-town courthouse. Part of the memorial was a sign that gave the names of those villagers who had died in various wars, and I thought that the sign must be the reason for the photograph. I could read the names, and I half expected to find the name Honecker among them. It wasn't there. That was one of his hobbies, said Miss Faust. What was? Photographing how cannonballs are stacked on different courthouse lawns, Apparently how they've got them stacked in that picture is very unusual. I see. He was an unusual man. I agree. Maybe in a million years everybody will be as smart as he was and see things the way he did. But compared with the average person of today, he was as different as a man from Mars. Maybe he really was a Martian, I suggested. That would certainly go a long way toward explaining his three strange kids. Chapter 28. Mayonnaise. While Miss Faust and I waited for an elevator to take us to the first floor, Miss Faust said she hoped the elevator that came would not be number five. Before I could ask her why this was a reasonable wish, number five arrived. Its operator was a small ancient Negro whose name was Lyman Enders Knowles. Knowles was insane, I'm almost sure, offensively so, in that he grabbed his own behind and cried, Yes, yes, whenever he felt that he'd made a point. Hello, fella anthropoids and lily pads and paddle wheels he said to Miss Faust and me. Yes, yes. First floor, please, said Miss Faust coolly. All Knowles had to do to close the door and get us to the first floor was to press a button, but he wasn't going to do that yet. He wasn't going to do it, maybe for years. Man told me, he said, that these here elevators was Mayan architecture. I never knew that till today. And I says to him, what's that make me? Mayonnaise? Yes, yes. And while he was thinking that over... I hit him with a question that straightened him up and made him think twice as hard. Yes, yes. Could we please go down, Mr. Knowles, begged Miss Faust. I said to him, said Knowles, this here's a research laboratory. Research means look again, don't it? 
means they're looking for something they found once and it got away somehow and now they got to research for it. How come they got to build a building like this with mayonnaise elevators and all and fill it with all these crazy people? What is it that they're trying to find again? Who lost what? Yes, yes. That's very interesting, sighed Miss Faust. Now could we go down? Only way we can go is down, barked Knowles. This here's the top. You asked me to go up and wouldn't be a thing I could do for you. Yes, yes. So let's go down, said Miss Faust. Very soon now. This gentleman here has been paying his respects to Dr. Honecker? Yes, I said. Did you know him? Intimately, he said. You know what I said when he died? No. I said, Dr. Honecker, he ain't dead. Oh, just entered a new dimension. Yes, yes. He punched a button and down we went. Do you know the Honecker children? I asked him. Babies full of rabies, he said. Yes, yes. Chapter 29. Gone but not forgotten. There was one more thing I wanted to do in Ilium. I wanted to get a photograph of the old man's tomb. So I went back to my room, found Sandra gone, picked up my camera, hired a cab. Sleet was still coming down, acid and gray. I thought the old man's tombstone and all that sleet might photograph pretty well. Might even make a good picture for the jacket of the day the world ended. The custodian at the cemetery gate told me how to find the Honecker burial plot. Can't miss it, he said. It's got the biggest marker in the place. He did not lie. The marker was an alabaster phallus, twenty feet high and three feet thick. It was plastered with sleet. By God, I exclaimed, getting out of the cab with my camera. How's that for a suitable memorial to a father of the atom bomb? I laughed. I asked the driver if he'd mind standing by the monument in order to give some idea of scale. And then I asked him to wipe away some of the sleet so the name of the deceased would show. He did so. And there on the shaft in letters six inches high, so help me God, was the word mother. Chapter 30. Only Sleeping. Mother, asked the driver incredulously. I wiped away more sleet and uncovered this poem. Mother, mother, how I pray for you to guard us every day. Angela Honecker. And under this poem was yet another. You are not dead, but only sleeping. We should smile and stop our weeping. Franklin Honecker. And underneath this, inset in the shaft, was a square of cement bearing the imprint of an infant's hand. Beneath the imprint were the words, Baby Newt. If that's mother, said the driver, what in hell could they have raised over father? He made an obscene suggestion as to what the appropriate marker might be. We found father close by. His memorial, as specified in his will, I later discovered, was a marble cube, forty centimeters on each side. Father, it said. Chapter 31. Another Breed. As we were leaving the cemetery, the driver of the cab worried about the condition of his own mother's grave. He asked if I would mind taking a short detour to look at it. It was a pathetic little stone that marked his mother. Not that it mattered. And the driver asked me if I would mind another brief detour this time to a tombstone sales room across the street from the cemetery. I wasn't a Boconanist then, so I agreed with some peevishness. As a Boconanist, of course, I would have agreed gaily to go anywhere anyone suggested. As Boconan says, peculiar travel suggestions are dancing lessons from God. The name of the tombstone establishment was Avram Breed and Sons. As the driver talked to the salesman, I wandered among the monuments, blank monuments, monuments in memory of nothing so far. I found a little institutional joke in the showroom. Over a stone angel hung mistletoe. 
Cedar boughs were heaped on her pedestal, and around her marble throat was a necklace of Christmas tree lamps. How much for her? I asked the salesman. Not for sale. She's a hundred years old. My great-grandfather, Abram Breed, carved her. This business is that old? That's right. And you're a Breed? The fourth generation in this location. Any relation to Dr. Aza Breed, the director of the research laboratory? His brother. He said his name was Marvin Breed. It's a small world, I observed. When you put it in a cemetery, it is. Marvin Breed was a sleek and vulgar, a smart and sentimental man. Chapter 32 Dynamite Money I just came from your brother's office. I'm a writer. I was interviewing him about Dr. Honecker, I said to Marvin Breed. There was one queer son of a bitch. Not my brother. I mean Honecker. Did you sell him that monument for his wife? I sold his kids that. He didn't have anything to do with it. He never got around to putting any kind of marker on her grave. And then after she'd been dead for a year or more, Honecker's three kids came in here. The big tall girl, the boy, and the little baby. They wanted the biggest stone money could buy. And the two older ones had poems they'd written. They wanted the poems on the stone. You can laugh at that stone if you want to, said Marvin Breed. But those kids got more consolation out of that than anything else money could have bought. They used to come and look at it and put flowers on it I don't know how many times a year. It must have cost a lot. Nobel Prize money bought it. Two things that money bought. A cottage on Cape Cod and that monument. Dynamite money, I marveled, thinking of the violence of dynamite and the absolute repose of a tombstone and a summer home. What? Nobel invented dynamite. Well, I guess it takes all kinds. Had I been a Boconist then, pondering the miraculously intricate chain of events that had brought dynamite money to that particular tombstone company, I might have whispered, busy, busy, busy. Busy, busy, busy is what we Boconanists whisper whenever we think of how complicated and unpredictable the machinery of life really is. But all I could say as a Christian then was, life sure is funny sometimes, and sometimes it isn't, said Marvin Breed. Chapter 33, An Ungrateful Man I asked Marvin Breed if he'd known Emily Honecker, the wife of Felix, the mother of Angela, Frank, and Newt, the woman under that monstrous shaft, Knower, his voice turned tragic. Did I know her, mister? Sure, I knew her. I knew Emily. We went to Ilium High together. We were co-chairman of the class colors committee then. Her father owned the Ilium music store. She could play every musical instrument there was. I felt so hard for her I gave up football and tried to play the violin. And then my big brother Asa came home for spring vacation from MIT. And I made the mistake of introducing him to my best girl... Marvin Breed snapped his fingers. He took her away from me just like that. I smashed up my $75 violin on a big brass knob at the foot of my bed. And I went down to a florist shop and got the kind of box they put a dozen roses in. And I put the busted fiddle in the box. And I sent it to her by Western Union Messenger Boy. Pretty, was she? Pretty, he echoed. Mister, when I see my first lady angel, if God ever sees fit to show me one... It'll be her wings and not her face that'll make my mouth fall open. I've already seen the prettiest face that ever could be. There wasn't a man in Ilium County who wasn't in love with her, secretly or otherwise. She could have had any man she wanted. He spit on his own floor. And she had to go and marry that little Dutch son of a bitch. She was engaged to my brother. And then that sneaky little bastard hit town. Marvin Breed snapped his fingers again. He took her away from my big brother like that. I suppose it's high treason and 
ungrateful and ignorant and backward and anti-intellectual to call a dead man as famous as Felix Honecker a son of a bitch. I know all about how harmless and gentle and dreamy he was supposed to be, how he never heard a fly, how he didn't care about money and power and fancy clothes and automobiles and things, how he wasn't like the rest of us, how he was better than the rest of us, how he was so innocent he was practically a Jesus, except for the Son of God part. Marvin Breed felt it was unnecessary to complete his thought. I had to ask him to do it. But what? he said. But what? He went to a window looking out at the cemetery gate. But what? he murmured at the gate and the sleet and the honecker shaft that could be dimly seen. But, he said, but how the hell innocent is a man who helps make a thing like an atomic bomb? And how can you say a man had a good mind when he couldn't even bother to do anything when the best-hearted, most beautiful woman in the world, his own wife, was dying for lack of love and understanding? He shuddered. Sometimes I wonder if he wasn't born dead. I never met a man who was less interested in the living. Sometimes I think that's the trouble with the world. Too many people in high places who are stone-cold dead. Chapter 34 Vin Dit. It was in the tombstone salesroom that I had my first vindit, a Boconanist word meaning a sudden, very personal shove in the direction of Boconanism, in the direction of believing that God Almighty knew all about me after all, that God Almighty had some pretty elaborate plans for me. The vindit had to do with the stone angel under the mistletoe. The cab driver had gotten it into his head that he had to have that angel for his mother's grave at any price. He was standing in front of it with tears in his eyes. Marvin Breed was still staring out the window at the cemetery gate, having just said his little piece about Felix Honecker. The little Dutch son of a bitch may have been a modern holy man, he added, but God damn if he ever did anything he didn't want to, and God damn if he didn't get everything he ever wanted. Music, he said. Pardon me, I asked. That's why she married him. She said his mind was tuned to the biggest music there was, the music of the stars. He shook his head. Crap. And then the gate reminded him of the last time he'd seen Frank Honecker, the model maker, the tormentor of bugs in jars. Frank, he said. What about him? The last I saw of that poor queer kid was when he came out through the cemetery gate. His father's funeral was going on. The old man wasn't underground yet, and out through the gate came Frank. He raised his thumb at the first car that came by. It was a new Pontiac with a Florida license plate. It stopped. Frank got in, and that was the last anybody in Ilium ever saw of him. I hear he's wanted by the police. That was an accident, a freak. Frank wasn't any criminal. He didn't have that kind of nerve. The only work he was any good at was model making. The only job he ever held on to was at Jack's Hobby Shop, selling models, making models, giving people advice on how to make models. When he cleared out of here, went to Florida, he got a job in a model shop in Sarasota. Turned out the model shop was a front for a ring that sold Cadillacs. Ran him straight on board old LSTs and shipped him to Florida. That's how Frank got balled up in all that. I expect the reason the cops haven't found him is he's dead. He just heard too much while he was sticking turrets on the battleship Missouri with Duco cement. Where's Newt now, do you know? Guess he's with his sister in Indianapolis. Last I heard, he was mixed up with that Russian midget and flunked out of pre-med at Cornell. Can you imagine a midget trying to become a doctor? And in that same miserable family, there's that great big gawky girl over six feet tall. That man, who's so famous for having a great mind, 
He pulled that girl out of high school in her sophomore year so he could go on having some woman to take care of him. All she had going for her was the clarinet she'd played in the Ilium High School band, the Marching Hundred. After she left school, said Breed, nobody ever asked her out. She didn't have any friends, and the old man even thought to give her any money to go anywhere. You know what she used to do? Nope. Every so often at night, she'd lock herself in her room and she'd play records. And she'd play along with the records on her clarinet. The miracle of this age, as far as I'm concerned, is that that woman ever got herself a husband. How much do you want for this angel? asked the cab driver. I've told you it's not for sale. I don't suppose there's anybody around who can do that kind of stone cutting anymore, I observed. I've got a nephew who can, said Breed, Ace's boy. He was all set to be a heap big research scientist, and then they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and the kid quit, and he got drunk, and he came out here and he told me he wanted to go to work cutting stone. He works here now? He's a sculptor in Rome. If somebody offered you enough, said the driver, you'd take it, wouldn't you? Might, but it would take a lot of money. Where would you put the name on a thing like that? asked the driver. There's already a name on it, on the pedestal. We couldn't see the name because of the boughs banked against the pedestal. It was never called for, I wanted to know. It was never paid for. The way the story goes, this German immigrant was on his way west with his wife, and she died of smallpox here in Ilium. So he ordered this angel to be put up over her, and he showed my great-grandfather that he had cash to pay for it. But then he was robbed. Somebody took practically every cent he had. All he had left in this world was some land he'd bought in Indiana, land he'd never seen. So he moved on, said he'd be back later to pay for the angel. But he never came back, I asked. Nope. Marvin Breed nudged some of the boughs aside with his toe so that we could see the raised letters on the pedestal. There was a last name written there. There's a screwy name for you, he said. If that immigrant had any descendants, I expect they Americanized the name. They're probably Jones or Black or Thompson now. There you're wrong, I murmured. The room seemed to tip and its walls and ceiling and floor were transformed momentarily into the mouths of many tunnels, tunnels leading in all directions through time. I had a Boconanist vision of the unity in every second of all time, and all wandering mankind, all wandering womankind, all wandering children. There you're wrong, I said when the vision was gone. You know some people by that name? Yes. The name was my last name, too. Chapter 35 Hobby Shop On the way back to the hotel, I caught sight of Jack's Hobby Shop, the place where Franklin Honecker had worked. I told the cab driver to stop and wait. I went in and found Jack himself presiding over his teeny-weeny fire engines, railroad trains, airplanes, boats, houses, lampposts, trees, tanks, rockets, automobiles, porters, conductors, policemen, firemen, mommies, daddies, cats, dogs, chickens, soldiers, ducks, and cows. He was a cadaverous man, a serious man, a dirty man, and he coughed a lot. What kind of a boy was Franklin Honecker? he echoed, and he coughed and coughed. He shook his head and showed me that he adored Frank as much as he'd ever adored anybody. That isn't a question I have to answer with words. I can show you what kind of a boy Franklin Honecker was, he coughed. You can look, he said, and you can judge for yourself. And he took me down into the basement of his store. He lived down there. There was a double bed and a dresser and a hot plate. Jack apologized for the unmade bed. My wife left me a week ago, he coughed. 
I'm still trying to pull the strings of my life back together. And then he turned on a switch, and the far end of the basement was filled with a blinding light. We approached the light and found that it was sunshine to a fantastic little country built on plywood, an island as perfectly rectangular as a township in Kansas. Any restless soul, any soul seeking to find what lay beyond its green boundaries, really would fall off the edge of the world. The details were so exquisitely in scale, so cunningly textured and tinted, that it was unnecessary for me to squint in order to believe that the nation was real. The hills, the lakes, the rivers, the forests, the towns, and all else that good natives everywhere hold so dear. And everywhere ran a spaghetti pattern of railroad tracks. Look at the doors of the houses, said Jack reverently. Neat, keen. They've got real knobs on them. And the knockers really work. God. You ask what kind of a boy Franklin Honecker was? He built this. Jack choked up. All by himself? Oh, I helped some. But anything I did was according to his plans. That kid was a genius. How could anybody argue with you? His kid brother was a midget, you know. I know. He did some of the soldering underneath. Sure looks real. It wasn't easy, and it wasn't done overnight, either. Rome wasn't built in a day. That kid didn't have any home life, you know. I've heard. This was his real home. Thousands of hours he spent down here. Sometimes he wouldn't even run the trains. Just sit and look, the way we're doing. There's a lot to see. It's practically like a trip to Europe. There are so many things to see if you look close. He'd see things you and I wouldn't see. He'd all of a sudden tear down a hill that would look just as real as any hill you ever saw, to you and me. And he'd be right, too. He'd put a lake where that hill had been, and a trestle over the lake, and it would look ten times as good as it did before. It isn't a talent everybody has. That's right, said Jack passionately. The passion cost him another coughing fit. When the fit was over, his eyes were watering copiously. Listen. I told that kid he should go to college and study some engineering so he could go to work for American Flyer, somebody like that. Somebody big, somebody who'd really back all the ideas he had. Looks to me as if you backed him a good deal. Wish I had. Wish I could have, mourned Jack. I didn't have the capital. I gave him stuff whenever I could, but most of this stuff he bought out of what he earned working upstairs for me. He didn't spend a dime on anything but this. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't go to movies, didn't go out with girls, wasn't war crazy. This country could certainly use a few more of those. Jack shrugged. Well, I guess the Florida gangsters got him. Afraid he'd talk. Guess they did. Suddenly, Jack broke down and cried. I wonder if those dirty sons of bitches, he sobbed, have any idea what it was they killed. Chapter 36 Meow during my trip to Ilium, and to points beyond, a two-week expedition bridging Christmas, I let a poor poet named Sherman Krebs live in my New York City apartment free. My second wife had left me on the grounds that I was too pessimistic for an optimist to live with. Krebs was a bearded man, a platinum blonde Jesus with spaniel eyes. He was no close friend of mine. I had met him at a cocktail party where he presented himself as National Chairman of Poets and Painters for Immediate Nuclear War, he begged for shelter, not necessarily bomb-proof, and it happened that I had some. When I returned to my apartment, still twanging with the puzzling spiritual implications of the unclaimed stone angel in Ilium, I found my apartment wrecked by a nihilistic debauch. Krebs was gone, but before leaving, 
He had run up $300 worth of long-distance calls, set my couch on fire in five places, killed my cat and my avocado tree, and torn the door off my medicine cabinet. He wrote this poem, in what proved to be excrement, on the yellow linoleum of my kitchen. I have a kitchen, but it is not a complete kitchen. It will not be truly gay until I have a disposal. There was another message, written in lipstick in a feminine hand on the wallpaper over my bed. It said, No, 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 said Chicken Lickin'. There was a sign hung around my dead cat's neck. It said, Meow. I have not seen Krebs since. Nonetheless, I sensed that he was my caress. If he was, he served it as a rang-rang. A rang-rang, according to Bokonin, is a person who steers people away from a line of speculation by reducing that line, with the example of the rang-rang's own life, to an absurdity. I might have been vaguely inclined to dismiss the stone angel as meaningless, and to go from there to the meaninglessness of it all. But after I saw what Krebs had done, in particular what he had done to my sweet cat, nihilism was not for me. Somebody, or something, did not wish me to be a nihilist. It was Krebs' mission, whether he knew it or not, to disenchant me with that philosophy. Well done, Mr. Krebs. Well done. Chapter 37 A Modern Major General And then one day, one Sunday, I found out where the fugitive from justice, the model maker, the great god Jehovah and Beelzebub of bugs in mason jars was, where Franklin Honecker could be found. He was alive. The news was in a special supplement to the New York Sunday Times. The supplement was a paid ad for a banana republic. On its cover was the profile of the most heartbreakingly beautiful girl I ever hoped to see. Beyond the girl, bulldozers were knocking down palm trees, making a broad avenue. At the end of the avenue were the steel skeletons of three new buildings. The Republic of San Lorenzo, said the copy on the cover. On the move. A healthy, happy, progressive, freedom-loving, beautiful nation makes itself extremely attractive to American investors and tourists alike. I was in no hurry to read the contents. The girl on the cover was enough for me. More than enough, since I had fallen in love with her on sight. She was very young, and very grave, too, and luminously compassionate and wise. She was as brown as chocolate. Her hair was like golden flax. Her name was Mona Amans Manzano, the cover said. She was the adopted daughter of the dictator of the island. I opened the supplement, hoping for more pictures of this sublime mongrel Madonna. I found instead a portrait of the island's dictator, Miguel Papa Manzano, a gorilla in his late seventies. Next to Papa's portrait was a picture of a narrow-shouldered, fox-faced, immature young man. He wore a snow-white military blouse with some sort of jeweled sunburst hanging on it. His eyes were close together. They had circles under them. He had apparently told barbers all his life to shave the sides and back of his head, but to leave the top of his hair alone. He had a wiry pompadour, a sort of cube of hair, marcelled, that rose to an incredible height. This unattractive child was identified as Major General Franklin Honecker, Minister of Science and Progress in the Republic of San Lorenzo. He was twenty-six years old. Chapter 38 Barracuda Capital of the World San Lorenzo was fifty miles long and twenty miles wide, I learned from the supplement to the New York Sunday Times. Its population was 450,000 souls, all fiercely dedicated to the ideals of the free world. Its highest point, Mount McCabe, was 11,000 feet above sea level. Its capital was Bolivar, a strikingly modern city built on a harbor capable of sheltering the entire United States Navy. 
The principal exports were sugar, coffee, bananas, indigo, and handcrafted novelties. And sports fishermen recognized San Lorenzo as the unchallenged barracuda capital of the world. I wondered how Franklin Honecker, who had never even finished high school, had got himself such a fancy job. I found a partial answer in an essay on San Lorenzo that was signed by Papa Manzano. Papa said that Frank was the architect of the San Lorenzo Master Plan, which included new roads, rural electrification, sewage disposal plants, hotels, hospitals, clinics, railroads, the works. And though the essay was brief and tightly edited, Papa referred to Frank five times as the blood son of Dr. Felix Honecker. The phrase reeked of cannibalism. Papa plainly felt that Frank was a chunk of the old man's magic meat. Chapter 39 Fata Morgana A little more light was shed by another essay in the supplement, a florid essay titled, What San Lorenzo Has Meant to One American. It was almost certainly ghost-written. It was signed by Major General Franklin Honecker. In the essay, Frank told of being all alone on a nearly swamped 68-foot criss-craft in the Caribbean. He didn't explain what he was doing on it or how he happened to be alone. He did indicate, though, that his point of departure had been Cuba. The luxurious pleasure craft was going down, and by meaningless life with it, said the essay. All I'd eaten for four days was two biscuits and a seagull. The dorsal fins of man-eating sharks were cleaving the warm seas around me, and needle-teethed barracuda were making those waters boil. I raised my eyes to my maker, willing to accept whatever his decision might be and my eyes alit on a glorious mountain peak above the clouds. Was this Fata Morgana, the cruel deception of a mirage? I looked up Fata Morgana at this point in my reading, learned that it was, in fact, a mirage named after Morgan Le Fay, a fairy who lived at the bottom of a lake. It was famous for appearing in the Strait of Messina, between Calabria and Sicily. Fata Morgana was poetic crap, in short. What Frank saw from his sinking pleasure craft was not cruel Fata Morgana, but the peak of Mount McCabe. Gentle seas then nuzzled Frank's pleasure craft to the rocky shores of San Lorenzo, as though God wanted him to go there. Frank stepped ashore, dry-shod, and asked where he was. The essay didn't say so, but the son of a bitch had a piece of ice nine with him, in a thermos jug. Frank, having no passport, was put in jail in the capital city of Bolivar. He was visited there by Papa Manzano, who wanted to know if it were possible that Frank was a blood relative of the immortal Dr. Felix Honecker. I admitted I was, said Frank in the essay. Since that moment, every door to opportunity in San Lorenzo has been opened wide to me. Chapter 40 House of Hope and Mercy As it happened, as it was supposed to happen, Boconan would say, I was assigned by a magazine to do a story in San Lorenzo. The story wasn't to be about Papa Manzano or Frank. It was to be about Julian Castle, an American sugar millionaire who had, at the age of 40, followed the example of Dr. Albert Schweitzer by founding a free hospital in a jungle by devoting his life to miserable folk of another race. Castle's hospital was called the House of Hope and Mercy in the Jungle. Its jungle was on San Lorenzo, among the wild coffee trees on the northern slope of Mount McCabe. When I flew to San Lorenzo, Julian Castle was sixty years old. He had been absolutely unselfish for twenty years. In his selfish days, he had been as familiar to tabloid readers as Tommy Manville, Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, and Barbara Hutton. His fame had rested on lechery, alcoholism, reckless driving, and draft evasion. 
he had had a dazzling talent for spending millions without increasing mankind's stores of anything but chagrin. He had been married five times, had produced one son. The one son, Philip Castle, was the manager and owner of the hotel at which I planned to stay. The hotel was called the Casa Mona, and was named after Mona Amans Manzano, the blonde negro on the cover of the supplement to the New York Sunday Times. The Casa Mona was brand new. It was one of the three new buildings in the background of the supplement's portrait of Mona. While I didn't feel that purposeful seas were wafting me to San Lorenzo, I did feel that love was doing the job. The Fata Morgana, the mirage of what it would be like to be loved by Mona Amans Manzano, had become a tremendous force in my meaningless life. I imagined that she could make me far happier than any woman so far had succeeded in doing. Chapter 41 A Carass Built for Two The seating on the airplane, bound ultimately for San Lorenzo from Miami, was three and three. As it happened, as it was supposed to happen, my seatmates were Horlick Mitten, the new American ambassador to the Republic of San Lorenzo, and his wife Claire. They were white-haired, gentle, and frail. Minton told me that he was a career diplomat, holding the rank of ambassador for the first time. He and his wife had so far served, he told me, in Bolivia, Chile, Japan, France, Yugoslavia, Egypt, the Union of South Africa, Liberia, and Pakistan. They were lovebirds. They entertained each other endlessly with little gifts, sights worth seeing out the plane window, amusing or instructive bits from things they read, random recollections of times gone by. They were, I think, a flawless example of what Bokonin calls a dupras, which is a carass composed of only two persons. A true dupras, Bokonin tells us, can't be invaded, not even by children born of such a union. I exclude the mittens, therefore, from my own carass, from Frank's carass, from Newt's carass, from Asa Breed's carass, from Angela's carass, from Lyman Ender's Knoll's carass, from Sherman Krebs' carass. The Minton's carass was a tiny one, composed of only two. I should think you'd be very pleased, I said to Minton. Uh, what should I be pleased about? Pleased to have the rank of ambassador. From the pitying way Minton and his wife looked at each other, I gathered that I had said a fat-headed thing. But they humored me. Yes, winced Minton. I'm very pleased. He smiled wanly. I'm deeply honored. And so it went with almost every subject I brought up. I couldn't make the mittens bubble about anything. For instance, I suppose you can speak a lot of languages, I said. Oh, six or seven, between us, said Minton. That must be very gratifying. What must? Being able to speak to people of so many different nationalities. Very gratifying, said Minton, emptily. Very gratifying, said his wife. And they went back to reading a fat, typewritten manuscript that was spread across the chair arm between them. Tell me, I said a little later, in all your wide travels, have you found people everywhere about the same at heart? Hmm? asked Minton. Uh, do you find people to be about the same at heart wherever you go? He turned at his wife, making sure he had heard the question, then turned back to me. About the same wherever you go, he agreed. Um, I said. Boconin tells us, incidentally, that members of a Dupras always die within a week of each other. When it came time for the Mintons to die, they did it within the same second. Chapter 42 Bicycles for Afghanistan There was a small saloon in the rear of the plane, and I repaired there for a drink. 
It was there that I met another fellow American, H. Low Crosby of Evanston, Illinois, and his wife Hazel. They were heavy people in their fifties. They spoke twangingly. Crosby told me that he owned a bicycle factory in Chicago, that he had had nothing but ingratitude from his employees. He was going to move his business to grateful San Lorenzo. You know San Lorenzo well? I asked. This will be the first time I've ever seen it, but everything I've heard about it I like, said H. Low Crosby. They've got discipline. They've got something you can count on from one year to the next. They don't have the government encouraging everybody to be some kind of original pissant nobody ever heard of before. Sir? Christ, back in Chicago we don't make bicycles anymore. It's all human relations now. The eggheads sit around trying to figure out new ways for everybody to be happy. Nobody can get fired no matter what. And if somebody does accidentally make a bicycle, the union accuses us of cruel and inhuman practices. And the government confiscates the bicycle for back taxes and gives it to a blind man in Afghanistan. And you think things will be better in San Lorenzo? I know damn well they will be. The people down there are poor enough and scared enough and ignorant enough to have some common sense. Crosby asked me what my name was and what my business was. I told him, and his wife Hazel recognized my name as an Indiana name. She was from Indiana, too. My God, she said. Are you a Hoosier? I admitted I was. I'm a Hoosier, too, she crowed. Nobody has to be ashamed of being a Hoosier. I'm not, I said. I never knew anybody who was. Hoosiers do all right. Lo and I've been around the world twice, and everywhere we went we found Hoosiers in charge of everything. That's reassuring. You know the manager of that new hotel in Istanbul? No. He's a Hoosier. And the military, whatever he is in Tokyo? Attaché, said her husband. He's a Hoosier, said Hazel. And the new ambassador to Yugoslavia? A Hoosier, I asked. Not only him, but the Hollywood editor of Life magazine, too. And that man in Chile, a Hoosier, too. You can't go anywhere a Hoosier hasn't made his mark, she said. The man who wrote Ben-Hur was a Hoosier. And James Whitcomb Riley. Are you from Indiana, too? I asked her husband. Nope. I'm a prairie stater. Land of Lincoln, as they say. As far as that goes, said Hazel triumphantly, Lincoln was a Hoosier, too. He grew up in Spencer County. Sure, I said. I don't know what it is about Hoosiers, said Hazel, but they've sure got something. If somebody was to make a list, they'd be amazed. That's true, I said. She grasped me firmly by the arm. We Hoosiers gotta stick together. Right. You call me Mom. What? Whenever I meet a young Hoosier, I tell him, You call me Mom. Uh-huh. Let me hear you say it, she urged. Mom? She smiled and let go of my arm. Some piece of clockwork had completed its cycle. My calling Hazel Mom had shut it off, and now Hazel was rewinding it for the next Hoosier to come along. Hazel's obsession with Hoosiers around the world was a textbook example of a false caress, of a seeming team that was meaningless in terms of the ways God gets things done, a textbook example of what Bokonin calls a Grand Falloon. Other examples of Grand Falloons are the Communist Party, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the General Electric Company, the International Order of Oddfellows, any nation, any time, anywhere. As Bokonin invites us to sing along with him, If you wish to study a Grand Falloon, just remove the skin of a toy balloon. Chapter 43 The Demonstrator 
H. Low Crosby was of the opinion that dictatorships were often very good things. He wasn't a terrible person, and he wasn't a fool. It suited him to confront the world with a certain barnyard clownishness. But many of the things he had to say about undisciplined mankind were not only funny, but true. The major point at which his reason and his sense of humor left him was when he approached the question of what people were really supposed to do with their time on Earth. He believed firmly that they were meant to build bicycles for him. I hope San Lorenzo is every bit as good as you've heard it is, I said. I only have to talk to one man to find out if it is or not, he said. When Papa Manzano gives his word of honor about anything on that little island, that's it. That's how it is. That's how it'll be. The thing I like, said Hazel, is they all speak English, and they're all Christians. That makes things so much easier. You know how they deal with crime down there? Crosby asked me. Nope. They just don't have any crime down there. Papa Manzano's made crime so damn unattractive, nobody even thinks about it without getting sick. I heard you can lay a billfold in the middle of a sidewalk, and you can come back a week later and it'll be right there, with everything still in it. Hmm. You know what the punishment is for stealing something? Nope. The hook, he said. No fines, no probation, no thirty days in jail. It's the hook. The hook for stealing, for murder, for arson, for treason, for rape, for being a peeping Tom. Break a law, any damn law at all. And it's the hook. Everybody can understand that. And San Lorenzo is the best behaved country in the world. What is the hook? They put up a gallows, see? Two posts and a crossbeam. And then they take a great big kind of iron fish hook and they hang it down from the crossbeam. Then they take somebody who's dumb enough to break the law and they put the point of the hook in through one side of his belly and out the other and they let him go. And there he hangs by God, one damn sorry lawbreaker. Good God. I don't say it's good, said Crosby, but I don't say it's bad either. I sometimes wonder if something like that wouldn't clear up juvenile delinquency. Maybe the hook's a little extreme for democracy. Public hanging's more like it. String up a few teenage car thieves on lampposts in front of their houses with signs around their necks saying, Mama, here's your boy. Do that a few times and I think ignition locks would go the way of the rumble seat and the running board. We saw that thing in the basement of the waxworks in London, said Hazel. What thing? I asked her. The hook. Down in the chamber of horrors in the basement. They had a wax person hanging from the hook. It looked so real I wanted to throw up. Harry Truman didn't look anything like Harry Truman, said Crosby. Uh, pardon me? In the waxworks, said Crosby. The statue of Truman didn't really look like him. Most of them did, though, said Hazel. Was it anybody in particular hanging from the hook? I asked her. I don't think so. It was just somebody. Just a demonstrator, I asked. Yeah, there was a black velvet curtain in front of it, and you had to pull the curtain back to see. And there was a note pinned to the curtain that said children weren't supposed to look. But kids did, said Crosby. There were kids down there, and they all looked. A sign like that is just catnip to kids, said Hazel. How did the kids react when they saw the person on the hook, I asked. Oh, said Hazel, they reacted just about the way the grown-ups did. They just looked at it and didn't say anything, just moved on to see what the next thing was. What was the next thing? It was an iron chair a man had been roasted alive in, said Crosby. He was roasted for murdering his son. Only after they roasted him, Hazel recalled blandly, they found out he hadn't murdered his son after all.
Chapter 44 Communist Sympathizers When I again took my seat beside the Dupress of Clare and Horlick Minton, I had some new information about them. I got it from the Crosbys. The Crosbys didn't know Minton, but they knew his reputation. They were indignant about his appointment as ambassador. They told me that Minton had once been fired by the State Department for his softness toward communism, and the communist dupes, or worse, had had him reinstated. Very pleasant little saloon back there, I said to Minton as I sat down. Hmm? He and his wife were still reading the manuscript that lay between them. Nice bar back there. Oh, good, I'm glad. The two read on, apparently uninterested in talking to me. And then Minton turned to me suddenly, with a bittersweet smile, and he demanded, Who was he, anyway? Who was who? The man you were talking to in the bar. Uh, we went back there for a drink, and when we were just outside, we heard you and a man talking. The man was talking very loudly. He said I was a communist sympathizer. A bicycle manufacturer named H. Low Crosby, I said. I felt myself reddening. I was fired for pessimism. Communism had nothing to do with it. I got him fired, said his wife. The only piece of real evidence produced against him was a letter I wrote to the New York Times from Pakistan. What did it say? It said a lot of things, she said, because I was very upset about how Americans couldn't imagine what it was like to be something else, to be something else and proud of it. I see. But there was one sentence they kept coming to again and again in the loyalty hearing, sighed Minton. Americans, he said, quoting his wife's letter to the Times, are forever searching for love in forms it never takes, in places it can never be. It must have something to do with the vanished frontier. Chapter 45 Why Americans Are Hated Claire Minton's letter to the Times was published during the worst of the era of Senator McCarthy, and her husband was fired twelve hours after the letter was printed. What was so awful about the letter? I asked. The highest possible form of treason, said Minton, is to say that Americans aren't loved wherever they go, whatever they do. Claire tried to make the point that American foreign policy should recognize hate rather than imagine love. I guess Americans are hated a lot of places. People are hated a lot of places. Claire pointed out in her letter that Americans, in being hated, were simply paying the normal penalty for being people, and that they were foolish to think they should somehow be exempted from that penalty. But the loyalty board didn't pay any attention to that. All they knew was that Claire and I both felt that Americans were unloved. Well, I'm glad the story had a happy ending. Hmm? said Minton. It finally came out all right, I said. Here you are on your way to an embassy all your own. Minton and his wife exchanged another of those pitying Dupras glances. Then Minton said to me, Yes. The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is ours. Chapter 46 The Boconanist Method for Handling Caesar I talked to the Mittens about the legal status of Franklin Honecker, who was, after all, not only a big shot in Papa Manzano's government, but a fugitive from United States justice. That's all been written off, said Minton. He isn't a United States citizen anymore, and he seems to be doing good things where he is, so that's that. He gave up his citizenship? Anybody who declares allegiance to a foreign state or serves in its armed forces or accepts employment in its government loses his citizenship. Read your passport. 
You can't lead the sort of funny paper international romance that Frank has led and still have Uncle Sam for a mother chicken. Is he well-liked in San Lorenzo? Minton weighed in his hands the manuscript he and his wife had been reading. I don't know yet. This book says not. What book is that? It's the only scholarly book ever written about San Lorenzo. Sort of scholarly, said Claire. Sort of scholarly, echoed Minton. It hasn't been published yet. This is one of five copies. He handed it to me, inviting me to read as much as I liked. I opened the book to its title page and found that the name of the book was San Lorenzo, The Land, The History, The People. The author was Philip Castle, the son of Julian Castle, the hotel-keeping son of the great altruist I was on my way to see. I let the book fall open where it would. As it happened, it fell open to the chapter about the island's outlawed holy man, Boconan. There was a quotation from the books of Boconan on the page before me. Those words leapt from the page and into my mind, and they were welcomed there. The words were a paraphrase of the suggestion by Jesus, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Boconan's paraphrase was this, Pay no attention to Caesar. Caesar doesn't have the slightest idea what's really going on. Chapter 47 Dynamic Tension I became so absorbed in Philip Castle's book that I didn't even look up from it when we put down for ten minutes in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I didn't even look up when somebody behind me whispered, thrilled, that a midget had come aboard. A little while later I looked around for the midget, but could not see him. I did see, right in front of Hazel and H. Low Crosby, a horse-faced woman with platinum blonde hair, a woman new to the passenger list. Next to hers was a seat that appeared to be empty a seat that might well have sheltered a midget without my seeing even the top of his head. But it was San Lorenzo, the land, the history, the people, that intrigued me then, so I looked no harder for the midgets. Midgets are, after all, diversions for silly or quiet times, and I was serious and excited about Boconan's theory of what he called dynamic tension, his sense of a priceless equilibrium between good and evil. When I first saw the term dynamic tension in Philip Castle's book, I laughed what I imagined to be a superior laugh. The term was a favorite of Boconan's, according to young Castle's book, and I suppose that I knew something that Boconan didn't know, that the term was one vulgarized by Charles Atlas, a mail-order muscle builder. As I learned when I read on, briefly, Boconan knew exactly who Charles Atlas was. Boconan was, in fact, an alumnus of his muscle-building school. It was the belief of Charles Atlas that muscles could be built without barbells or spring exercisers, could be built by simply pitting one set of muscles against another. It was the belief of Boconan that good societies could be built only by pitting good against evil and by keeping the tension between the two high at all times. And in Castle's book, I read my first Boconanist poem, or Calypso. It went like this. Papa Manzano, he's so very bad, but without bad Papa I would be so sad, because without Papa's badness, tell me if you would, how could wicked old Boconan ever, ever look good? Chapter 48 Just Like St. Augustine Boconan, I learned from Castle's book, was born in 1891. He was a Negro, born an Episcopalian, and a British subject on the island of Tobago. He was christened Lionel Boyd Johnson. He was the youngest of six children, born to a wealthy family. His family's wealth derived from the discovery by Boconan's grandfather 
of one quarter of a million dollars in buried pirate treasure, presumably a treasure of Blackbeard, of Edward Teach. Blackbeard's treasure was reinvested by Bokonin's family in asphalt, copra, cocoa, livestock, and poultry. Young Lionel Boyd Johnson was educated in Episcopal schools, did well as a student, and was more interested in ritual than most. As a youth, for all his interest in the outward trappings of organized religion, he seems to have been a carouser, for he invites us to sing along with him in his fourteenth calypso. When I was young, I was so gay and mean, and I drank and chased the girls just like St. Augustine. St. Augustine, he got to be a saint, so if I get to be one also, please, Mama, don't you faint? Chapter 49 A Fish Pitched Up by an Angry Sea Lionel Boyd Johnson was intellectually ambitious enough, in 1911, to sail alone from Tobago to London in a sloop named the Lady's Slipper. His purpose was to gain a higher education. He enrolled in the London School of Economics and Political Science. His education was interrupted by the First World War. He enlisted in the infantry, fought with distinction, was commissioned in the field, was mentioned four times in dispatches. He was gassed in the Second Battle of Ypres, was hospitalized for two years, and then discharged. And he set sail for home, for Tobago, alone in the Lady's Slipper again. When only eighty miles from home, he was stopped and searched by a German submarine, the U-99. He was taken prisoner, and his little vessel was used by the Huns for target practice. While still surfaced, the submarine was surprised and captured by the British destroyer, the Raven. Johnson and the Germans were taken on board the destroyer, and the U-99 was sunk. The Raven was bound for the Mediterranean, but it never got there. It lost its steering. It could only wallow helplessly or make grand clockwise circles. It came to rest at last in the Cape Verde Islands. Johnson stayed in those islands for eight months, awaiting some sort of transportation to the Western Hemisphere. He got a job at last as a crewman on a fishing vessel that was carrying illegal immigrants to New Bedford, Massachusetts. The vessel was blown ashore at Newport, Rhode Island. By that time, Johnson had developed a conviction that something was trying to get him somewhere for some reason. So he stayed in Newport for a while to see if he had a destiny there. He worked as a gardener and carpenter on the famous Rumford estate. During that time, he glimpsed many distinguished guests of the Rumfords, among them J.P. Morgan, General John J. Pershing, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Enrico Caruso, Warren Gamaliel Harding, and Harry Houdini. And it was during that time that the First World War came to an end, having killed ten million persons and wounded twenty million, Johnson among them. When the war ended, the young Rakel of the Rumford family, Remington Rumford IV, proposed to sail his steam yacht, the Scheherazade, around the world, visiting Spain, France, Italy, Greece, Egypt, India, China, and Japan. He invited Johnson to accompany him as first mate, and Johnson agreed. Johnson saw many wonders of the world on the voyage. The Scheherazade was rammed in a fog in Bombay Harbor, and only Johnson survived. He stayed in India for two years, becoming a follower of Mohandas K. Gandhi. He was arrested for leading groups that protested British rule by lying down on railroad tracks. When his jail term was over, he was shipped at crown expense to his home in Tobago. There, he built another schooner, which he called the Lady's Slipper Two and he sailed her about the Caribbean, an idler, still seeking the storm that would drive him ashore on what was unmistakably his destiny. In 1922, he sought shelter from a hurricane in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, 
which country was then occupied by United States Marines. Johnson was approached there by a brilliant, self-educated, idealistic Marine deserter named Earl McCabe. McCabe was a corporal. He had just stolen his company's recreation fund. He offered Johnson $500 for transportation to Miami. The two set sail for Miami. But a gale hounded the schooner onto the rocks of San Lorenzo. The boat went down. Johnson and McCabe, absolutely naked, managed to swim ashore. As Boconan himself reports the adventure, A fish pitched up by the angry sea. I gasped on land and I became me. He was enchanted by the mystery of coming ashore naked on an unfamiliar island. He resolved to let the adventure run its full course, resolved to see just how far a man might go, emerging naked from salt water. It was a rebirth for him. Be like a baby, the Bible say, so I stay like a baby to this very day. How he came by the name of Boconan was very simple. Boconan was the pronunciation given the name Johnson in the island's English dialect. As for that dialect, the dialect of San Lorenzo is both easy to understand and difficult to write down. I say it is easy to understand, but I speak only for myself. Others have found it as incomprehensible as Basque, so my understanding of it may be telepathic. Philip Castle, in his book, gave a phonetic demonstration of the dialect and caught its flavor very well. He chose for his sample the San Lorenzan version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, in American English, one version of that immortal poem goes like this. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, shining in the sky so bright like a tea tray in the night. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. In San Lorenzan dialect, according to Castle, the same poem went like this. Zventkul, zventkul, let pool store, kojai zventur, batbuyor, putchinik on lo shizo brath, Kamun Titron on Lonath. Zventkul, Zventkul, Letpool Store. Kojai, Zventur, Batbu Yor. Shortly after Johnson became Boconan, incidentally, the lifeboat of his shattered ship was found on shore. That boat was later painted gold and made the bed of the island's chief executive. There is a legend made up by Boconan, Philip Castle wrote in his book, that the golden boat will sail again when the end of the world is near. Chapter 50. A Nice Midget My reading of The Life of Boconan was interrupted by H. Low Crosby's wife, Hazel. She was standing in the aisle next to me. You'll never believe it, she said, but I just found two more Hoosiers on this airplane. I'll be damned. They weren't born Hoosiers, but they live there now. They live in Indianapolis. Very interesting. Do you want to meet them? Do you think I should? The question baffled her. They're your fellow Hoosiers. What are their names? Her name is Connors, and his name is Honecker. They're brother and sister, and he's a midget. He's a nice midget, though, she winked. He's a smart little thing. Does he call you Mom? I almost asked him to, and then I stopped, and I wondered if maybe it wouldn't be rude to ask a midget to do that. Nonsense. Chapter 51 Okay, Mom. So I went aft to talk with Angela Honecker Connors and little Newton Honecker, members of my carass. Angela was the horse-faced platinum blonde I had noticed earlier. Newt was a very tiny young man indeed, though not grotesque. He was as nicely scaled as Gulliver among the Brobdenagians, and as shrewdly watchful, too. 
He held a glass of champagne, which was included in the price of his ticket. That glass was to him what a fishbowl would have been to a normal man, but he drank from it with elegant ease, as though he and the glass could not have been better matched. The little son of a bitch had a crystal of ice nine in a thermos bottle in his luggage, and so did his miserable sister, while under us was God's own amount of water, the Caribbean Sea. When Hazel had got all the pleasure she could from introducing Hoosiers to Hoosiers, she left us alone. Remember, she said as she left us, from now on, call me Mom. Okay, Mom, I said. Okay, Mom, said Newt. His voice was fairly high, in keeping with his little larynx, but he managed to make that voice distinctly masculine. Angela persisted in treating Newt like an infant, and he forgave her for it with an amiable grace I would have thought impossible for one so small. Newt and Angela remembered me, remembered the letters I'd written, and invited me to take the empty seat in their group of three. Angela apologized to me for never having answered my letters. I couldn't think of anything to say that would interest anybody reading a book. I could have made up something about that day, but I didn't think you'd want that. Actually, the day was just like a regular day. Your brother here wrote me a very good letter. Angela was surprised. Newt did? How could Newt remember anything? She turned to him. Honey, you don't remember anything about that day, do you? You were just a baby. I remember, he said mildly. I wish I'd seen the letter. She implied that Newt was still too immature to deal directly with the outside world. Angela was a god-awfully insensitive woman, with no feeling for what smallness meant to Newt. Honey, you should have showed me that letter, she scolded. Sorry, said Newt. I didn't think. I might as well tell you, Angela said to me. Dr. Breed told me I wasn't supposed to cooperate with you. He said you weren't interested in giving a fair picture of father. She showed me that she didn't like me for that. I placated her some by telling her that the book would probably never be done anyway, that I no longer had a clear idea of what it would or should mean. Well, if you ever do do the book, you'd better make father a saint, because that's what he was. I promised that I would do my best to paint that picture. I asked if she and Newt were bound for a family reunion with Frank in San Lorenzo. Frank's getting married, said Angela. We're going to the engagement party. Oh, who's the lucky girl? I'll show you, said Angela, and she took from her purse a billfold that contained a sort of plastic accordion. In each of the accordion's pleats was a photograph. Angela flipped through the photographs, giving me glimpses of little Newt on a Cape Cod beach, of Dr. Felix Honecker accepting his Nobel Prize, of Angela's own homely twin girls, of Frank flying a model plane on the end of a string. And then she showed me a picture of the girl Frank was going to marry. She might, with equal effect, have struck me in the groin. The picture she showed me was of Mona Amans Manzano, the woman I loved. Chapter 52 No Pain Once Angela had opened her plastic accordion, she was reluctant to close it until someone had looked at every photograph. There are the people I love, she declared. So I looked at the people she loved. What she had trapped in plexiglass, what she had trapped like fossil beetles in amber, were the images of a large part of our carass. There wasn't a grand falooner in the collection. There were many photographs of Dr. Honecker, father of a bomb, father of three children, father of Ice Nine. He was a little person, the purported sire of a midget and a giantess. My favorite picture of the old man in Angela's fossil collection showed him all bundled up for winter, in an overcoat, scarf, galoshes, and a wool-knit cap with a big pom-pom on the crown. 
This picture, Angela told me, with a catch in her throat, had been taken in Hyannis just about three hours before the old man died. A newspaper photographer had recognized the seeming Christmas elf for the great man he was. Did your father die in the hospital? Oh, no. He died in our cottage, in a big white wicker chair facing the sea. Newt and Frank had gone walking down the beach in the snow. It was a very warm snow, said Newt. It was almost like walking through orange blossoms. It was very strange. Nobody was in any of the other cottages. Ours was the only one with heat, said Angela. Nobody within miles, recalled Newt wonderingly. And Frank and I came across this big black dog out on the beach, a Labrador retriever. We threw sticks into the ocean and he brought them back. I'd gone into the village for more Christmas tree bulbs, said Angela. We always had a tree. Did your father enjoy having a Christmas tree? He never said, said Newt. I think he liked it, said Angela. He just wasn't very demonstrative. Some people aren't. And some people are, said Newt. He gave a small shrug. Anyway, said Angela, when we got back home, we found him in the chair. She shook her head. I don't think he suffered any. He just looked asleep. He couldn't have looked like that if there'd been the least bit of pain. She left out an interesting part of the story. She left out the fact that it was on that same Christmas Eve that she and Frank and little Newt had divided up the old man's ice nine. Chapter 53. The President of Fabritech. Angela encouraged me to go on looking at snapshots. That's me, if you can believe it. She showed me an adolescent girl six feet tall. She was holding a clarinet in the picture, wearing the marching uniform of the Ilium High School Band. Her hair was tucked up under a bandsman's hat. She was smiling with shy good cheer. And then Angela, a woman to whom God had given virtually nothing with which to catch a man, showed me a picture of her husband. So that's Harrison C. Connors. I was stunned. Her husband was a strikingly handsome man, and looked as though he knew it. He was a snappy dresser, and had the lazy rapture of a Don Juan about the eyes. What, what does he do? I asked. He's president of Fabritech. Electronics? I couldn't tell you even if I knew. It's all very secret government work. Weapons? Well, war, anyway. How did you happen to meet? He used to work as a laboratory assistant to father, said Angela. Then he went out to Indianapolis and started Fabritech. So your marriage to him was a happy ending to a long romance? No, I didn't even know he knew I was alive. I used to think he was nice, but he never paid any attention to me until after father died. One day he came through Ilium. I was sitting around that big old house, thinking my life was over. She spoke of the awful days and weeks that followed her father's death. Just me and little Newt in that big old house. Frank had disappeared, and the ghosts were making ten times as much noise as Newt and I were. I'd given my whole life to taking care of father, driving him to and from work, bundling him up when it was cold, unbundling him when it was hot, making him eat, paying his bills. Suddenly there wasn't anything for me to do. I'd never had any close friends, didn't have a soul to turn to but Newt. And then, she continued, there was a knock on the door, and there stood Harrison Connors. He was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. He came in, and we talked about Father's last days and about old times in general. Angela almost cried now. Two weeks later, we were married. Chapter 54 Communists, Nazis, Royalists, Parachutists, and Draft Dodgers 
Returning to my own seat in the plane, feeling far shabbier for having lost Mona Amans Manzano to Frank, I resumed my reading of Philip Castle's manuscript. I looked up Manzano, Mona Amans, in the index, and was told by the index to see Amans Mona. So I saw Amans Mona, and found almost as many page references as I'd found after the name of Papa Manzano himself. And after Amans Mona came Amans Nestor, so I turned to the few pages that had to do with Nestor, and learned that he was Mona's father, a native Finn, an architect. Nestor Amans was captured by the Russians, then liberated by the Germans during the Second World War. He was not returned home by his liberators, but was forced to serve in a Wehrmacht engineer unit that was sent to fight the Yugoslav partisans. He was captured by Chetniks, royalist Serbian partisans, and then by communist partisans who attacked the Chetniks. He was liberated by Italian parachutists who surprised the communists, and he was shipped to Italy. The Italians put him to work designing fortifications for Sicily. He stole a fishing boat in Sicily and reached neutral Portugal. While there, he met an American draft dodger named Julian Castle. Castle, upon learning that Amans was an architect, invited him to come with him to the island of San Lorenzo and to design for him a hospital to be called the House of Hope and Mercy in the jungle. Amans accepted. He designed the hospital, married a native woman named Celia, fathered a perfect daughter, and died.